You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 0001 of The Briefcase, a podcast for lawyers who want to keep up to date with the judicial Joneses, so to speak, but who just don't have the time or energy for long-winded case and legislation updates. So this show is going to take that 15 minutes of quote-unquote free time you have each week, and we're going to fill it with juicy legal updates, all substantive, no filler. We're going to chat with two legal rock stars each week, and we'll get the skinny on their respective areas of law. And then again, the following week, we'll mix things up and talk to two more legal legends and so on and so forth. You get the gist. Who am I? I am Sarah and I am your host. And it is my absolute pleasure to get to ask the perennial question for the very first time. What's in the briefcase this week? All right, here we go. I'm opening it up. That's a quality sound effect. I don't think I'll ever get sick of that. All right, this week in the briefcase, we have a family case and a succession law case. Kicking off with Craig Nickel, co-author of the Family Law Book. And you can read more about Craig by clicking on the link to his socials in the show notes. Hello, Craig. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Good. And, and yourself? Yes. Yeah, good. Brilliant. Good. good. And your your delightful wife, Jenny? <laughs> Pretty much the um, Jessica Rabbit of accounting. <laughs> just, just you know, she's, let's be honest. She really is. She's she'll, awesome. She'll be flattered by that. All right. Well, on to the million-dollar question. Have you read any good cases lately? Sure. Plunge and Calhoun. Uh, so that's Plunge with a P and a Calhoun with a K. And the full citation will be in the show notes as well. So what makes that case interesting? Well, it's a Division Two decision, so uh, it's not binding. But um, when I'm working with the Family Law Book, I find that uh, we get plenty of queer queries from subscribers about COVID-19 cases. Um, and surprisingly, there's not actually that many that's come through the pipeline yet. Yeah. But this case that's come along this year um, is bang on point. And it's on the discrete issue of whether or not uh, the 10-year-old child in this case should be vaccinated or not vaccinated. It's useful for practitioners who inevitably are going to get the client that comes in that is sitting one way or the other in terms of being pro-vaccination or Mm. anti-vaccination. All right, so Cliff's notes, as it were, version of this case. So what are the facts of this particular case, Craig? It involved a a 10-year-old son um, of these parties. Mum, in particular, wanted the child to be administered the Pfizer vaccine it was in in this particular case. Dad was uh, vaccination hesitant. And in the lead-up to trial, the court... Um, specifically made directions, look, each of you, uh, mum and dad, go off and file your own evidence with respect to supporting one way or the other, your case one way or the other. The mother filed an affidavit of a Dr E, who was a public health researcher uh, in the area of vaccination. And importantly, in this case, there was no other expert evidence. She also relied on just some general writings and pamphlets from the World Health Organization. Um, And another group out of America, the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, which I understand is an agency in the USA. Yeah, I've Um, heard of it, so it must be (laughs) legit. The father, his argument generally was, well, 
my hesitancy is about there not being known what the long-term side effects are of vaccines. So I can't prove a negative. You can't expect me to file expert evidence with respect to unknown side effects. Yeah, right. So what was the um, upshot? What happened? The judge in this case was um, Judge B. Smith, who this year has been elevated to Division One, And his honour goes out of his way to try and distance himself, or the distance the court rather, from any particular view as to uh, pro-vaccination or being against vaccination. Mm. Um, his honour goes through the Evidence Act and then simply makes the determination based on um, the evidence before the court. His honour then proceeded to look at the evidence before him as to the risk. He considered the, the pamphlets and the, the World Health Organisation uh, documents uh, and said, well, in the absence of the makers of those statements being available for cross-examination, mm. um, that no weight would be given to those, oh, wow. which is interesting because uh, there are other cases where th that sort of government policy document and um, public information has been considered by the court. Let me guess the outcome. And I'm sure I'm going to be, I'm 99% I'm <laughs> sure I'm going to be correct. You like your game shows, but okay. Yeah, All I right. do like I'll, my game I'll, shows. I'll be, I'll be the quiz master. Okie dokie. Um, <laughs> I'm going to guess that his honour ruled that the child not be vaccinated. Ba -ba -oh. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I thought you were. I thought you were working up to that. I really did. I really did. In the end, the the court was left with one piece of admissible expert evidence, which was Doctor E's report. Oh, of course. Um, Doctor E's findings was that it more advantageous health-wise mm. for this child to be vaccinated as opposed to the risks risks associated with the vaccination. Yeah. Um, uh, and in light of that being the only expert opinion before the court, mm -hmm. the court found accordingly that it was in this child's best interest to be vaccinated and the uh, vaccination was ordered. Um, any other takeaways? There's not going to be uh, a, a position one way or the other for or against vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, the other takeaway is don't think that you can rely simply on government policies, pamphlets, mm. uh, your own public readings in terms of the, the risks for or against vaccination. Um, the court is going to want uh, t as, as tailored evidence as you possibly can. Mm. In an ironic way, mm. um, the fact that the court goes so far as to step through the Evidence Act because it wants the uh, litigants in person in that case to understand the rationale behind the decision, it actually provides a really good step through guide for practitioners who are going to be wrestling with the same issues. Yeah, fabulous. What's your position on courts deciding medical matters? I, I think, it, and, and I don't mean to answer your question with a question, um, <laughs> but... How very smart of you. <laughs> um, that's the way to do it. Don't never <laughs> answer the question. Just ask me another one, more philosophical. I'm very political. Yes. Um, I think that the um, the court, generally speaking, um, will only make those sorts of determinations um, when it absolutely has to, in my experience. Yeah, right. Um, so, and if it can try and deal with a matter within the rubric of uh, parental responsibility, um, in my experience and my reading of the cases, mm. that's generally preferred. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why this case is is interesting mm. because previous cases 
do deal with vaccination in terms of um, parental responsibility. So I'm going to um, give sole parental responsibility in respect of, say, vaccination or particular medical decisions to one parent over the other. Awesome. Thank you so much, Craig, yet again, for your insight and brilliance around these case updates. Anybody wanting to tap into that should and should definitely reach out to you by your social networks and connect. I think on the, the last panel you had me on, I think I got hit with a question about Harry Potter or something. <laughs> yeah, like that. that sounds about uh, right, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm halfway through the first book. Oh, are you? <laughs> I, I'm that busy reading cases. So oh my I, I don't have... <laughs> You just don't have <laughs> an enough opportunity time to, to, to read other things. <laughs> no, no, to just actually get on top of your Harry Potter reading. <laughs> yeah, look, I've been there. You, you got to prioritise. That's your problem. Next cab off the rank is Succession with Karen Gaston, who is a barrister at the Queensland Bar. And again, if you want to read more, click on the link in the show notes. I should note that my hair is looking a lot more nutty professor today than I intended. I just, I just want you to know that. Okay, that's good. So if you're looking at my hair going, no. that's a cockatoo. I'm looking at hair going, that's Sarah hair. Perfect. I love it. It's on brand. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so Sarah equals Nutty Professor um, no. cockatoo hair. You note that I did not say that. No, you, no, you didn't. All right, I'm going to the negative place, aren't I? <laughs> you are. I'm not accepting the compliment. Yes. Own your own brand. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, Karen... <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sarah. What have you been up to? Have you read anything interesting? Well, I think I have a job where I spend most of my time reading things. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Not all of them are interesting, can I just say. Fair enough. But there is a case that I'd like to talk about today, and it's actually a high court decision. Now, it is a tax decision, so and I, I don't want you to glaze over, and I don't want you to stop listening. <laughs> Am um, I stopping recording at this point? Yeah, no. <laughs> please don't. Please don't. And the reason that I want to mention it is not necessarily because it's a fascinating tax case. Um, it's not. <laughs> All right, again, don't glaze over and <laughs> don't, don't stop glaze listening. Over. <laughs> yeah. But I think it has some implications. It's to do with being presently entitled to income right. in a um, discretionary trust, and I think with the prevalence of discretionary trusts throughout all of Australia as a vehicle for people to run businesses, to sort of manage investment portfolios. I think it just has a broad application. Mm. So what's the name of this case? Ah, the name <laughs> of the case is the Commissioner of Taxation and Carter. And we'll have the full citation in the show notes. What do you see the everyday impact of this particular decision being? Right. Well, we have to talk about what the decision actually is. So in this particular case, that the issue was when is someone presently entitled to the income of a trust? Right. The reason that's important is because that's what you're taxed on. That's You're taxed on the present entitlement as a beneficiary in the trust. In 90% of cases, at the end of every financial year, the trustee will pass a resolution that says, this is how we're going to divide the income. In this particular case, the trustee omitted to do that before the end of financial year. And what ended up happening is a default provision in the trustee needed to be relied on. After this had occurred, those beneficiaries sat down and disclaimed their interest in that income. They said, we don't want it. Take it out of our tax return. We don't want to pay tax on it. Right. And the commissioner said, that's great. You can say that, but we're still going to tax you on it. How was that? Because, <laughs> and this is why the matter went to the High Court, 
they needed to interpret the particular legislative provision, mm. which happened to be Section 97 of the um, Income Tax Assessment Act, mm-hmm. um, 1936, and they needed to interpret that section and determine what it meant. The majority decision of the High Court said the question of present entitlement of a beneficiary to the income of a trust must be tested and examined at the close of the taxation year and not for some reasonable period of time after the end of the taxation year. Right. 30 June is it. You can't make a decision on 1 July. It has to be at close of play on 30 June. Right. And that's, you know, the the decision talks about and acknowledges that that can produce unfair results. So it can produce a result where the beneficiaries don't know. If they had known, they would do a deed of disclaimer come Mm. the end of the 30th of June. But Mm. they didn't know, so they didn't do it, and now they're stuck with this. Can um, I ask a silly question? Of course you can, and there's no such thing as a silly question. Well, just wait until you hear the question before you (laughs) you say that. What is a deed of disclaimer? Yeah, so that is simply a document by which you say, that income there that you said that I got, I don't want it. I'm going to disclaim the gift. I don't want it. But it's just a way of recording you rejecting that. You're rejecting the income. So what happens to the income then if you reject it? That's a really good question. (laughs) Um, if all of the default beneficiaries reject it, well, presumably you're back to a position where it's taxed in the hands of the trustee, which is something we're all trying to avoid because it's a much higher rate of tax. Any other lessons from this particular case? Well, I think there's a couple of key takeaways here. The first one is people need to make a considered choice every year about what they're doing with the income of a trust. We've always known that, but I suppose what this case means is if you stuff it up in any one given year, you can't easily fix it. Right. So you've got to get it right mm. because once the 30th of June in any one tax year has passed, you can't undo it. That's it. That's really what the case means. You can't undo it. But um, secondly, it's also an area where I think people find themselves in family law context having, you know, a marriage in difficulty or a relationship in difficulty or, in fact, they are already separated And suddenly we've got a vindictive spouse saying all the income can be yours this year and you're going to get taxed on that. Right. How we deal with the impact of this particular decision in that family law space, and I think that's something that family lawyers are still grappling with. I don't know the answer, but I think it's worth having the conversation about. Mm. And don't run away from the numbers. Yeah, and don't go tax. I'm not a tax person. I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) I, look, honestly, I did law to get away from numbers, but at the same time, Me yeah, too. And yeah, we're words, we're and wordsmiths. Yet, we're not and yet, numbers. And then I sit down with you know distribution schedules and calculations. And a calculator? Do you have a calculator on my phone? Yeah. On, you don't have one of those big old ones no. from high school with oh, all no. the different functions. No, 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 no. Or oh, probably have one, but goodness only knows where it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember when they forced you to buy those calculators? Yes, I and do. you never really I did do. much with yeah, them. Yeah, no. Except spell boobs upside down. <laughs> well, that's what I did. And then I discovered you could do boobies. Oh, no. Yeah. Not just boobs. Yeah. Game changer. That took it to the next level. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. Thank you again to my fabulous guests on this premiere episode of The Briefcase, Craig Nicholl and Karen Gaston, two of my favourite humans. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase. Oh,